0: Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. It's uh, Brent and David again here on recording this on the 20th of January. So a little cold out there today. It's hard to believe January. I'm still getting ready to go on Christmas break, Brent. I don't know about you. I saw this to-do list of things i got to do before Christmas break. Uh, but here we are a month later. So I guess uh, time to start working on my list of things to do before the new year. But wanted to chat a little bit today about some things that we've been writing about, some things that we've been thinking about and the first one I want to pull up here, and you know, chat a little bit. But I guess first, before we get into this, Brent, I want to mention, you know, at the end of Corn Saves America, we had this, you know, conversation with Sarah, the last episode, which is out, episode ten, about how biases impact our thinking, and I think. Uh, One thing that also happens is after you listen to Corn Saves America, it biases your thinking a little bit. So I was on a flight this week on Delta and they had this ad that popped up and uh, I sent it to you. I was kind of laughing. It says, you know, carbon neutral since 2020. Mm -hmm. And I think if you, you know, just look at that on the surface and having going through the podcast as a listener and as, you know, kind of the creative side of the team, you know, that's a really big goal. And I think, you know, it's just interesting how, normally I probably wouldn't have noticed that, but I I definitely noticed it. And then it made me look into what did that really mean? And, you know, it was kind of this aspirational, they want to get there eventually, but that's not what that ad said on the back of the seat on that display monitor. It said carbon neutral since 2020, which is really more of a we have a plan to be carbon neutral since 2020 or a pathway. So I think that's uh, a little bit of bias from the podcast and how I view some of that stuff. So um, I've been seeing carbon neutral comments all over the place here lately.
1: It is the hot thing to do in corporate America is to declare neutrality and move on and uh, hope nobody checks. And, And again, I think that's part of the lesson of, uh, corn saves America is that it's easy to declare those things and it's easy to move toward it when it's cheap. It gets expensive. That stuff's going to go away
0: probably. Yeah. So one of the articles wrote this week, we're going to do a kind of a multiple part series here, looking at grain stocks kind of is easy to get caught up in the, what's happening in the U S production from one WASD monthly estimate to the next. So step back, look, at the global situation, There's a lot of details here. I encourage you to read the article. But in general, the stock situation globally has continued for corn, wheat, and soybeans collectively to trend lower over the last few years. Um, That's a positive story. The other thing to keep in mind is China has an increasing share of global ending stocks. And so, you know, let's look at corn, for example. In 2010, for example, China held about 10% of the global corn stock inventories or the ending stock inventories. Now they're holding close to, uh, you know, 60 or 70% of all those ending stocks. So that starts to impact what these ending stock situations look like, and it's just important to recognize that this changes over time. We actually did a longer run view and China held you know, 75% of corn stocks in the mid 90s and they dropped them back to 30 and then they expanded again. And we wrap this up by talking a little bit about how ending stocks are probably the hardest thing to, for forecasters, the US government or private forecasters to estimate because all of the errors of production estimates or uh, usage estimates or trade estimates, they all... Compound and they all reside in the ending stocks. And if there's a, an issue that's, kind of being underestimated over many years or overestimated over any, many years, a sort of a, system wide error, um, it starts to compound. And so I think that's just a really important thing to keep in mind when we look at ending stocks. But, you know, as we take China out of the global stock situation and think about how much is actually available for trade, you know, these are starting to get pretty tight inventory. So, corn ending stocks getting a little increased from last year, but still very, very tight, historically speaking. Soybeans uh, and wheat both turned tighter here. So kind of this big data story about how do we unpack all the moving pieces? China has more of the global ending stocks. Everything less China is getting tighter. What are the implications moving forward? We don't have the answer, but wanted to help you all think about that.
1: Well, it certainly highlights uh, how important it is to really think about that data because if you just look at that first chart you show in the global stocks to consumption ratio you get a very different view of the world than if you look at the last one that excludes China and uh, you know the story is of tightening versus you know really pretty adequate stocks for all commodities and it just always points down. I'll never forget. I had a conversation with, you know, an analyst at a hedge fund a number of years ago, and he just made the comment. He's like, "I am so sick of this. Like, every story in commodities comes down to China, and nobody knows what the hell's going on." <laughs> and uh, I think that's still true. There's just so. Those numbers, they're so big that they really swing the totals considerably when you look at how much of those ending stocks they have. I mean, 70% of global ending stocks, is that right, on corn? Yeah. That's a crazy number. It's an absolute crazy number. and
0: um, 50% of the wheat, uh, almost 40% of the global soybeans are hanging out there.
1: And so, you know, I think it's hard to know what to do with that other than to say, you know, like you said, you know, we have to look at their observed behavior. And so it's just interesting. They've been buying pretty aggressively on corn, which if they have that much of the world's stocks, you would think they wouldn't necessarily need to. So it's puzzling to say the least. And so when you, t- when you take them out, um, the story looks a lot different and uh, makes you think that all these markets are going to be tighter than maybe we
0: think. So a second article, I mean, you know, we've been thinking a lot about interest rates. And so it's kind of a follow-up on some stuff that we wrote several years ago, this idea of what's going on with real interest rates or inflation-adjusted interest rates. And there are several measures to look at this. They're the Treasury Inflation index securities. Those have been negative for about a year and a half now. We also took a look at the US prime real estate in real terms. So what's the prime rate less, what's going on with inflation. Even took a stab at it with uh, farm loan interest rates. And you can see a situation where kind of depends on how exactly you measure this and when you line up the data, but these rates are very, very low. And so I think on inflation adjusted Situation: We had career low interest rates, and we had a, a pretty high inflation in 2021, especially towards the end of the year. And so, you really have to wonder how long this will play out. And there's a lot of ways it's going to unravel, right? Interest rates could go up, inflation could slow down. But just recognizing that this kind of played out here, there's not very many times in history when we see these very low inflation-adjusted rates. But just wait, you know, keep an eye on that and recognize that that could be a change, a force of change moving forward.
1: Yeah, re- real negative interest rates are a pretty powerful force usually in terms of investment. And uh, they tend to generate a lot of activity. I think you're seeing that in the farmland market for sure, but everywhere else. And so it's really important to watch that and see how that evolves. And, you know, we've got movement in inflation, uh, which we haven't had for a long, long time. And, is not clear at all um, how that's all gonna feed through to longer term interest rates. But it's I think it is the thing to watch going forward. Not as much worried about price inflation as asset value deflation, which I think could have a really big impact on psyche of America so it's just so, really important to, to watch it
0: so uh, and we've wrote about this a lot you know there's a lot going on in the short run here in 2020 too uh, but there's also long- run implications so don't get caught up in the short runs you know what's the Fed going to do at the next meeting uh, think about some of the long-term trends I think this is an example these negative real interest rates um, that's a kind of an anomaly. It's not out of the ballpark, but it's very rare and it's not likely to stick around for the rest of your career, I guess is the way that we would think about that. How is that impacting decisions today and how does a change from that impact you know, future decisions that folks might be thinking about? So thinking about changing decisions, Brent, kind of my transition, my segue here, um, I wanted to compare forecasts a little bit if you got yours pulled up on... Corn and soybean acreage. Of course, we have the two forecast network questions, probability of the March, prospective planning, estimating more than 93 million acres of corn. Um, we're hearing some chatter about, you know, an upcoming report, private estimate that's going to come out here that I, maybe lead me to change my forecasts a little bit. But I think we're entering the, just the season, right? Just the season for lots of estimates. And I think they're going to be all over the board. Right now, I think there's a 65% probability that, um, the consensus, however, is well below. It's hanging out about 35%. So I am starting to think about changing my forecast a little bit lower here, Brent. Um, where are you at?
1: Uh, I am at 60% on more than 93 million acres of corn. And I, you know, just looking at that too. <laughs> yeah, we saw some numbers this morning from an analyst and they were surprising to both of us, I think especially given our forecast and uh, the consensus uh, is definitely trending in the direction of that forecast, which is less acres of corn than either of us are thinking. And I was at 60% on soybeans being over 87 million acres. I have increased that to 70%. So I'm just a little bit above the consensus, but again, both cases the consensus tracking well above where I was for quite a while and um on corn well below and uh so maybe we need to pay attention to that and uh so i might be like you i think I'll probably uh, maybe a little bit too aggressive on corn acres i mean the soybean corn price ratio has definitely improved in the last two months we're up to like 2.34 now and if we went back and looked at those estimates I put together on the article, I think it'd be worthwhile going back and looking at those. You know, at that time, it was more favor, you know, corn soybean to corn price ratio was even lower, which, you know, I think it's time to probably update our forecasts a bit.
0: So I, I raised my soybean forecast. I was at 45%. I moved it to 55%, kind of trying to get back to the mean. This has been open long enough that if I'm wrong, I'm going to have an abysmal score. Um, It's going to be really, really bad. So, um, again, of course, we also had the question about combined corn and soybean acres getting over 180 million. They're at 180.5 last year. Um, I'm currently at a 40% probability of that happening. The consensus uh, is well above, it's about closer to 70%. So, I probably need to update my thinking on that as well. I don't know. We'll see how it plays (laughs) out. And I've I've done it.
1: I've been at 60% on that and I 180 I guess maybe I should up it a little bit but right now I don't don't have a huge feeling that I need to. I mean I think those two forecasts of mine were not internally consistent so I was saying there's a good chance we're going to have over 93 million acres of corn as well as a good chance over 87 but only a 60% chance over 180 and you know, probably not thinking that through correctly. Uh, my forecasts probably aren't very consistent, so it's time I think to dig into that. I mean, you know, we're going to start set crop insurance prices here pretty soon, and uh, it's really time to to focus on that stuff.
0: Speaking of crop insurance, we have a question in the forecast network about the probability of the crop insurance uh price ratio. And so we'll talk about that in a future conversation. But yeah, we're getting very close to this planting conversation. So we'll have to see how that uh resolves itself. So lots of estimates coming through. I think Brent, you hit on a good point. Look for the consistency across these. You know, don't look at the individual estimates with this idea, of, okay, where's corn at? Where's soybeans? How are the two of those working together and how does that fit together? So That's all the time we have for today. Thank you all for joining us and uh, we'll catch you next time. In the meantime, stay curious. Thanks.